Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you after uh, being out sick last week. I appreciate the, uh, the prayers and the, uh, the many notes. Uh, I do appreciate, uh, appreciate each and every one of you and uh, certainly miss being with you when I have to be absent. Still thinking about the song that we just closed with, Lord have mercy. You know, there, there's a lot of songs and one of the really philosophies around our music ministry is we, we don't do a lot of repetitive choruses because we want us to think about the words that we sing. And yet there's some phrases that bear repetition and that is one of them. When we think about our lives, when we think about the week, it is only by the mercy and the grace of the Lord that we can come, we can gather together, that we have breath, we get to enjoy beautiful days like we enjoyed this weekend. And we need to remember as we've studied the Sermon on the Mount through our study of Matthew, of coming humbly, remembering our spiritual poverty. Well, we are going to continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew, and actually this will be the last in our study of the Gospel of Matthew before we break for this summer. You can turn with me to Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 29. You know, when we think about Jesus' ministry, when we think about even what we've studied, these number of really now going on about two and a half years, we often think of the Jewishness of Jesus' ministry. The Jewishness that surrounded it. That's not surprising and it's not wrong. He was a Jew and he was born in Israel in Bethlehem. He ministered primarily to the Jewish people. And yet we know that his ministry and we know that the message was intended for this world. For all peoples. It had been prophesied long ago. So when did the message of salvation, specifically within Jesus' ministry, begin to extend broadly to the whole world, that is, the Gentiles? Would it perhaps even surprise you a little bit to recognize or maybe learn anew that Jesus taught to thousands of Gentiles, sometimes specifically to Gentiles? That he ministered, cared for, felt compassion, healed Gentiles, thousands of them, in his earthly ministry. That he did not just minister to two or three select Gentiles who came to him, but ministered at least on one occasion to thousands. This morning we're going to observe one such time of teaching and ministry, and as we do, as we see again the bread of life come to the Gentiles, I hope it will encourage you when you feel estranged and remind you of the need also to minister to those who seem furthest removed from the hope of salvation. Read along with me, if you would, Matthew 15, beginning in verse 29. Departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there. And large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others, and laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. 
And Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. The disciples said to him, where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish. And giving thanks, he broke them and started giving them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over of the, of the broken pieces, seven large baskets full. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. Let's pray. Father, as we look again at a miracle of feeding, whether we would not skim past it just because it seems so familiar, but we take the time to carefully look at the uniqueness of this story in this passage, that we would recognize within it the hope of salvation for us, the mercy that has been poured out, the mercy that we need each and every day. Would it motivate us in preaching, proclaiming, and living out the gospel to those around us, to those who are estranged from the hope of salvation. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have you ever experienced deja vu or something similar to that? You feel like you've just had the same conversation or you've been through this before. It never happens if you have children. You never have to answer the same question twice. Well, that's a little bit how I feel reading this passage. I've seen this before. In fact, it was just a little bit earlier. Jesus felt compassion. He fed a large multitude with just a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. I was curious. I looked at one of the largest sermon aggregation sites and was just curious how others treated this passage. And I was a little bit surprised to see that most treat it very briefly. In fact, they lump it together with the first portion of chapter 16 and spend most of their time in chapter 16. And it's because it feels like we've been here, done this very recently. So what is there new to be gathered? It's a good question. Why did Matthew repeat this? Especially so close together. We just looked at this a chapter ago. Was it an accident? Did Matthew in his excitement forget that he had just shared a similar account? Is this, as some have suggested, a repeat of the same account, but the details had gotten a little fuzzy? I certainly don't think it's the same account with altered, altered details, but that still leaves in some important questions about why Matthew would repeat such a similar story and account so close together. I mean, how does this further his purpose in presenting Jesus as king with the nearness of the dawning of the kingdom of God? I mean, come on, Matthew, let's move the story along. Well, to help answer this question, we're going to play a game, or at least do what we do when we play a game. If you've ever uh, had that game where you have two pictures side by side and you have to spot the differences, you need to identify what is different. They look identical at first, but your job as you study it is to identify how many differences can you find. 
There's usually a few that are easy to spot, but there's others that they stay hidden for a little while. Well, part of our task this morning is to compare these two accounts and spot the differences. And, and there's going to be five specifically. There's more. You could find more differences. The longer you look, the more you would see. But there's going to be five differences I want us to take note of this morning. Because these differences are the key to answering why Matthew chose to tell this story now so close to the similar event of chapter 14. But that's only half the job. Because we don't want to just know why he put it so close together. We want to know the significance of why he put it so close together. So then we're going to do something, perhaps a little bit unique in our study, is we're going to start all over again. We're going to go back through the text. And we're going to identify five similarities between these passages. Because while the differences help tell us why Matthew shares another miracle of feeding, by itself it doesn't answer why it is important or significant to the presentation of this king and his kingdom. But these similarities will help draw out the significance of these differences. So look at the text with me. You may have already started to jump back and forth between 14 and 15. You may be ahead of me already. But bear with me as we remind ourselves that the story begins. It begins with Jesus in the area of Tyre and Sidon to the north-northwest of Galilee. This is as Gentile as it gets, thoroughly Gentile territory. Jesus has gone there, you may remember, to remove himself from Herod's somewhat obsessive fascination with him. So he's retreated out of Herod's realm. And yet his popularity and ministry were well known even in this Gentile region. It had begun spreading so that wasn't long after he had sat down, he and we read in Mark, in a home, and people and persons immediately began coming to him as he was recognized. One particular woman gains significant attention as the spotlight, as the camera turns and focuses on her, this Syrio-Phoenician woman who comes to him begging for the healing of her child. And there we see a fascinating interaction as God and through the superintending of the Holy Spirit has preserved for us an example of faith in this Gentile woman as Jesus interacts with her and questions her to help draw out the extent and the significance of her faith. Well, verse 29 picks up when he leaves the area of Tyre and Sidon. And it contains our first difference that we note this morning between chapter 14 and 15. And it's going to be that as we see him move along, he arrives at a different location with a different audience. In verse 29, Matthew moves us from the region of Tyre and Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee. Now, when you get to the Sea of Galilee, you've got two directions you can go coming from the north. You can go west or you can go east. To the west, you go deeper into Jewish territory. Continue down south, southwest, you arrive in Jerusalem. You go to the east. And you're in the Gentile regions. Jesus, as Mark helps make clear in John, Mark 7.31, travels to the east and to the south. Into the region called Decapolis. Now the significance is not so much in the geography, although it's important to note that this is where the Gentiles are. But it's in the fact that the audience that would have existed in this region is just that. Gentiles. Whereas the first feeding was predominantly Jewish, done there on the north edge of the Sea of Galilee, this is in a thoroughly Gentile area with an audience that would have been predominantly Gentile. Perhaps some of the same Gentiles who had heard the ministry of John the Baptist, who you may remember preached beyond the Jordan. 
who stirred up and created concern for Herod that he would stir up sedition by those who were already looking for a reason to come after Herod because of his uh, romantic trysts and his remarriages. And so you've got a Gentile people who would have been familiar to some extent with this preaching, this preaching of the kingdom of God, much like the Jewish audience who had heard the preaching of John the Baptist. And yet these are Gentiles. And this is significant, particularly in light of the interaction we've just witnessed in the region of Tyre and Sidon with the woman who came to Jesus. Matthew writes that Jesus goes up onto the mountain and was sitting there. Now, even though it says the mountain, we don't know which mountain it was. In fact, it may have been more of a directional the mountain. In other words, the mountain region. You see, just a little further to the east, away from the shore of the sea, the geography changes quickly and you end up in the hills or the mountains. The geography of Israel, when you read mountain, there are a couple of true mountains, although even then they're a little bit small compared to mountains we have out west. But it's more of how we in the south refer to a mountain. It's really more of a speed bump. But those are the mountains that they would have had. And the mountain range would have been to the east there. So that's where they headed. The setting is reminiscent of the Sermon on the Mount and the fact that Jesus was there for three days teaching them, as we've already read, implies that not only was he healing, but teaching. Perhaps he taught this Gentile audience much of the same content from the Sermon on the Mount. We know that throughout his ministry, he preached the same central message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the reference to this setting echoes the prophet Isaiah. In fact, turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah 25. And if you've got a piece of paper or a bookmark, hold your spot in Isaiah. We're going to be there a lot this morning. Go to Isaiah 25, verse 6. And note what the prophet says. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, refined and aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. He will remove the reproach of His people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God, for whom we have waited that He might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. Now chapter 15 is not the same banquet Isaiah is describing. I don't want to confuse you. But just as the first feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 14 anticipates the great wedding feast of the Lamb, so too this second feeding, especially as we see the inclusion of all peoples, as we recognize this Jewish, this Gentile audience, and as we see the dawning of the kingdom and the temporary limited rolling back of the curse through the healing of the people. We've talked before about how healing of sickness and disease, how intimately and closely that is tied to salvation because it marks visibly the rolling back of the curse and the effects of the curse. These things are part of the dawning of the kingdom, the light that shines 
right before the sun peaks over the edge of the horizon. Well, looking again at verse 9 of Isaiah 25, you see that similar worshipful response, or you see that worshipful response there, and you see a similar one in Matthew 15, 30 through 31, and this is where we note our second difference. We note a difference in worship, or maybe we would just say we note worship. The crowds first approach Jesus, and they laid the needy at his feet. And at the risk of seeing too strong an allusion to the future kingdom, note Christ's position. He is seated on high, while the Gentiles stream to him in both worship and petition. Both the prophet Isaiah and Isaiah 2.2 and Micah in Micah 4.1 write, saying the same thing. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Again, I'm not saying that this is the fulfillment of that, but it's the dawning, the hints of the fulfillment. And that it will, in fact, take place just as Isaiah prophesied, just as Micah prophesied. And if you still have your place in Isaiah, turn to Isaiah chapter 35. Look at verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and, in, and streams in the Arabah. The dawning of these promises is upon the world. The glimmers of light are seen through the ministry of Jesus. And as Jesus is healing and demonstrating his power over this world and his authority over sin, Matthew says in verse 31 that the crowds, these Gentiles, marveled at what they were seeing. And in response, they worshipped him. They glorified the God of Israel. In chapter 14, it doesn't say that Israel did this. The Jews did not do this. This expression, God of Israel, while a common expression of Israelite worship, is also the most frequent expression of Gentile worship in the Old Testament. Or of Gentile rebuke, when it's making it clear that it is the God of Israel who is at work among you Gentiles. And so we find this expression that they worship the God of Israel, not the gods that they have known, not the gods of their fathers, but the God of Israel. Our next difference is in verses 32 through 34. And this difference is relatively simple and straightforward. It's a different in food. This time Jesus does not leave open the option of sending the people away when he asks the disciples for the solution to their hunger and need. And while there are certainly similarities, as we'll note later, we notice that the quantities themselves are even different. There are seven loaves and a few fish instead of five loaves and two fish. And there's no mention of the provision coming from a young boy. Sounds like it may have actually been from the disciples themselves. These small differences serve to reinforce that these are indeed two different events, as we've already asserted. It will be in the similarities of the situation, the specifically of the food, that we observe some important application in our life, but we'll finish with the differences. Verses 35 and 36 give us a fourth difference. And it's found in the prayer that's offered. Whereas in chapter 14, Jesus blessed 
God and bless the food. Here, Jesus, thanks God. That may seem like a small difference, but it is a difference nonetheless, especially when we see this foreshadowing the establishment of the Last Supper. Both in Luke twenty-two nineteen and 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-four, we are reminded of Jesus giving thanks before the breaking of bread. You see, what we have here is a pattern established, one that was taught to the Gentiles, of giving thanks to God for all things. And it's true that Jesus gives thanks for what they have. He doesn't say thank you that you are about to multiply the bread and the fish. He gives thanks for what they have. He certainly fully anticipates the provision that will come, but he begins by giving thanks for the limited resources they have. I'm going to pause here because this is really an example of how we should pray. Our prayers should be focused on thanksgiving first and foremost for what God has given and has provided. It's not wrong at all to ask God for things, but begin by giving thanks and recognizing all that He has already given and ensure that you are approaching Him with a grateful heart. You see, there's a reason for this. God's orchestrated us this way. Gratefulness will guard you against selfishness. It will protect you against selfishness. It'll protect you against grumbling. It'll protect you against complaining. It will help you to ask according to God's will. Just taking the time to take stock of all that you have provides much needed perspective, especially in our consumer-driven Western society. We easily forget and take for granted all that we have. We quickly move on to the next shiny object or thing that we want or think we need. I mean, contentment is a struggle in this life, is it not? I appreciate the reminder Elise has in our living room. that It's the reminder that I still remember praying for the things I have today. Now, that takes effort. It doesn't come naturally. So I say I'm thankful for the reminder. Because I needed to be reminded to remember that I have today the things I've already prayed for. When is the last time you prayed solely to give thanks for what you have? When is the last time you did that? No other purpose, no other reason, just to give thanks. Not to ask for anything anew, but with specificity to give thanks for what you have. And it may sound simple, that may sound very simple, but it will be tremendously soothing to your soul. It will help bring a calmness. It will help bring a peace. It will help bring a contentment in this consumer-driven life. Well, returning to our differences. There's a fifth difference, and it's in what remains in verses 37 through 38. Well, certainly illustrating similar characteristics in these verses... There's a key difference, and that's in what remains. And again, when we studied the feeding of the 5,000, we acknowledge that we cannot be dogmatic about the meaning and the reason behind 12 basketfuls. It wasn't accidental. 12 is a significant number, especially with regard to Israel, with the tribes, the apostles, the 12 thrones that are promised. So we cannot be 
specific at the same time, but we do know it's, it's important. Well, here in the feeding of the 4,000, we find seven baskets. And interestingly, if you're reading the Greek text, you would find that the term for basket is even different. Again, that may seem small, but the term used back in chapter 14 for the 12 baskets left over after the feeding of the 5,000 is a term for basket that in other ancient texts speaks specifically to the types of baskets that were set aside for the carrying of kosher foods. Which again, makes perfect sense in a Jewish context like we have in chapter 14. However, the term for basket here is the much more generic term. By itself, it may not be convincing, but given the Gentile setting, what we've already observed, it adds further evidence to the non-Jewish nature of this craft. But then, what of this number, this seven? Again, I'm not about to say we can be dogmatic about what it means. But we can note that the number seven is used throughout Scripture, whether it be creation, whether it be the Proverbs, to speak of fullness and completeness. Some have suggested that the number seven here speaks to the completeness of the future heavenly banquet that's prophesied in Isaiah as it foreshadows this. The completeness being that it's comprised of all peoples. We've seen it with the Jews. Now we see it with the Gentiles. All peoples will participate in this heavenly banquet. That's certainly a true statement, whether or not the fullness and completeness symbolized by the seven baskets indicates this. Again, I will not be dogmatic on that. But we can certainly affirm the truth of that statement. So why again, or why does Matthew present the feeding of the 4,000? So close on the heels of the feeding of 5,000. Simply put, to show the inclusion of the Gentiles. To show the promises are to the Gentiles. But what of its significance? While there are other differences you can find, and in fact, the more you study it, just like the game with two pictures where you spot the difference, the more differences you will continue to find. Even though there are more, we're going to turn our attention to the similarities because we want to answer that question. We want to know why is this significant? Having established the Gentile nature of this miracle and the participation of the Gentiles in the feast of the king, there are several important theological realities based on this Gentile inclusion that are highlighted by the similarities of these two events. So, back up to verse 29. Verses 29 through 31 actually give us the first similarity we want to note. And again, like with the differences, there are more than five similarities, but these are five I want to draw out this morning. The first similarity we notice is the healing miracles that are taking place. We have seen Jesus performing miracles, so why is that significant? Well, it's significant, and the significance comes from the fact that this is a non-Jewish audience. These are Gentiles being healed, every one of them. This was a remarkable shift in the ministry of Christ, not only in the healing, but in the fact that he was on the mountain for three days healing and presumably teaching these Gentiles, these thousands of Gentiles, 4,000 men plus the women and children. The significance of this event is seen in the proclamation of the kingdom and the kingdom promises to Gentiles. Not only are they hearing the message of the kingdom of heaven that is at hand, but they are also experiencing the blessings of the nearness of the king, 
of watching the temporary rolling back of the effects of the curse because of the nearness of Christ. Gentiles are both witnesses and participants in the dawning of this messianic kingdom. This is an echo of Isaiah's prophecy when he wrote in Isaiah 9, and if you've still got your finger in Isaiah, turn there. Isaiah 9, chapter one, uh, ch- or verse 1. And notice, by the way, the specificity of geography here between Isaiah 9 and what Matthew and Mark describe the feeding of the 4,000. Isaiah 9, verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish, In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. By the way, that's the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. It would have been a lot of the Galilean region. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea. On the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness, which was also another description for Gentiles, will see a great Light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. The light of the Messiah is shining upon the Gentiles by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan here. And they are rejoicing. We've already seen their worship, their response. Verse 32, first half, provides a similarity in compassion. This inclusion of Gentiles is further seen in the first half of this verse where we see this similar expression of compassion. We saw it in the feeding of the 5,000 and now we see it in the feeding of the 4,000. Jesus expresses compassion. And this is a significant term, and we've talked about this. One that is steeped in salvation history. It's not a benign term of just feeling bad for someone. In the Old Testament, this compassion is closely linked to God's loving kindness, His chesed, the mercy of God. This singularity of expression further unites the salvation of the Jew and the Gentile in Christ. The similarity here highlights that there is but one way of salvation, one Savior for Jew and Gentile alike, Jesus Christ. As Peter proclaimed in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, which by you must be saved. The second half of verse 32 and verse 33 provide a third similarity, and it's a similarity of situation. The people are hungry. It's a desolate place. They've been there for three days. And so Jesus calls together disciples, asking them for the solution to the people's problem. Now, obviously, this is a little bit different because he doesn't let them make the mistake of trying to send the people away. He actually asks them a little bit more of a leading question. You can almost picture, especially if if you've ever been a teacher or you've ever administered any sort of test, and you really want the students to get the answer right, you go ahead and remove or ask the question in such a way that you remove one of the wrong answers. Okay, one of the wrong answers is sending them away. So what should I do? I feel compassion for them. How do I take care of them? He asked the disciples. This is perhaps the most surprising similarity of all in this text. It's the apparent dullness of the disciples. Now we don't know why. 
presuming, you know, perhaps they were afraid of presuming upon God. John talks about they not recognizing the bread of life and presumption. So perhaps there was a fear of presuming upon God after these, the first miracle. Or perhaps it was too literal an application from his interaction with the Syrophoenician woman. No, no, no. We can't offer food to them because they are Gentiles. They only get the crumbs. Not wanting them to share in the banquet table. Or perhaps it was simple lack of faith. Not one of the disciples, though, suggests that he performed the miracle he just did a few days or weeks earlier in feeding 5,000 men plus women and children. We don't know the reason or reasons the disciples failed to ask or to suggest that Jesus provide. But I would suggest that we can recognize several reasons why we may have failed in these circumstances. Perhaps you've been afraid to ask something from God sometime. Either because you don't want to be disappointed. Or you don't really believe that he will do it. Perhaps you're afraid that the ask is too big. Or perhaps it's too small to bother God. You don't want to trouble him. Perhaps it's because of our own pride or selfishness that we do not entreat the Lord for others. I mean, why should God provide for them when I still have needs? Or perhaps it's our own littleness of faith. We do not receive, Jesus says, because we do not ask. And then when we do ask, so often it's with wrong motives. That's why we go back to starting with thanksgiving. To the disciples' shame that day, they failed to ask. They failed to answer with the solution that would have alleviated the hunger of all those who gathered. Instruction, the reminder, the implication for us is do not delay in coming to Christ and petitioning Him. We do not have because we do not ask. Now start in developing the right motives. One of those is giving thanks. But do not delay to ask. Knock and the door will be open to you. Seek and you will find. I think one of the reasons, and I said this a couple weeks ago, for the dearth, the lack, the insufficient faith in our churches today is because we do not pray as we should and we do not give thanks as we should. We don't take the time to pray and we don't take the time to recognize answered prayer. One of the greatest and simplest ways to increase your faith is to pray with specificity and note God's answer to prayer through thanksgiving. Well, Christ is faithful. He will not allow the crowd to suffer because of the failure of the disciples. And so he provides to these Gentile crowds. Perhaps this is no accident. Perhaps this is to further illustrate that our hope, our trust, our confidence can never be placed in a person or persons. No matter how trustworthy and capable they may seem, no matter how much power or authority they have on earth, people will at some point fail us. So Jesus provides a second situation. It seems somewhat startling. Another opportunity for the disciples, the 12 apostles, the foundation of the church, to fail. So that we might all see and realize that our hope must be in God. Well, just as the 
There was similarity in the healing and the compassion and the situation. We see a similarity of solution in verses 34 through 36. Well, the starting quantity is slightly greater than the feeding of the 5,000 with seven loaves and a few fish instead of five loaves and two fish. It is still woefully insufficient to feed a crowd of 4,000 plus women and children. But Jesus prays and then he begins to distribute through his disciples. It's the exact same pattern we saw in chapter 14 with the feeding of the 5,000. And like the feeding of the 5,000, we are reminded of the events of Exodus where God provided manna from heaven to feed and care for the people of Israel in that desolate wilderness. There's something of wonderful note here. Jesus uses the very same disciples and apostles who failed miserably moments before as the instruments of grace. The instruments to distribute the bread from heaven to these Gentiles. What a beautiful picture of the grafting in of the Gentiles into the root of Israel. And salvation coming from Israel to the whole world as it comes from Christ through the apostles to the Gentiles. Even more after their failures. What a beautiful reminder. Israel as a nation certainly failed. And yet God has not set her aside. It always amazes me how God uses a person like me, a sinner, a failure in so many ways. It's far from perfect. Fails far too often to still be able to minister to others. I mean, what an encouragement that is. What an encouragement from this story. They had failed miserably moments before, and yet Christ did not set them aside. They became the instruments, the immediate instruments of His grace to minister to the crowds. The same can be said for any of us in this room. Anytime God uses a person, he uses an imperfect vessel. And you can imagine that with each piece of bread and fish they handed out, these apostles were reminded of their inadequacy and their lack of faith moments earlier. And yet, this action worked to increase their faith. We know this because we have the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. We know this because of church history. We see the faithfulness of these men. So too, when we find ourselves used by God despite our inadequacies, when failure rings in the back of your mind, do not let that consume you. Instead, ask for mercy. Ask for mercy. And then, be obedient. Don't let your failure paralyze you. God could have chosen another method, another means for distributing the bread of the word of life after his ascension, but he chose to use us. Sinners saved by grace. Let that encourage you and humble you. Lastly, in verses 37 through 38, we see a similar result. Like the 5,000, this Gentile crowd is completely satisfied. The bread from heaven satisfies every person, Jew and Gentile alike. 
There is no other message that is needed. There is no other gospel that is needed for any person that has ever lived in this world. The same gospel produces the same result. It will satisfy the deepest need of the affluent Westerner or the impoverished outcast in India. Look, it will even save a capitalist and a communist alike. Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. No one comes into the kingdom of God apart from Him. It satisfies all who will eat from it. That's why this is significant. That's why Matthew provides a story. That we would see the increase and the means of the increase of the kingdom of God. Perhaps you are here this morning and you're hurting. Well, the answer is come to Jesus. Come to the feet of the Savior. Perhaps you're here this morning, you're tired and you are famished. This world has worn you down, it's wrung you out. The answer is come to Jesus. Perhaps you're here this morning, you realize how many times you failed in your own strength. To please God, the answer is come to Jesus. Perhaps you're here this morning, you think that God could not love you, that you have sinned too much. The answer is come to Jesus. Perhaps you're here this morning, you're anxious and afraid, and your faith is small. The answer is the same. Come to Jesus. He offers the bread of heaven, which satisfies every hurt and every longing of the soul. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you, the bread of life. Thank you for your words, which nourish us Nourish our souls that are famished. Father, there is a famine in this land. Father, and it is famine for hearing the word of God that is the bread of life. Would you allow us to be faithful instruments of dispensing this bread? Not because we're perfect. Not because we do everything right. But because in our failures we cry out for mercy. And would we be faithful to make you known, to glorify the God of Israel. If there's any here this morning who have never tasted the bread of life, Father, I pray that you would, you would break their spirit, that your Holy Spirit would work in them, that would call them to repentance, that they would repent of their sins. I thank you for your precious word. In your name, amen.